We're talking about worship again. It's such a common term we throw around quite a bit, but if you think about it, it really can be an elusive subject. I mean, we schedule it, we set aside both time and place, but there's no guarantee it's going to happen. We plan it, we prepare for it, yet it's not like a building you put up and point to and say, there it is, that is worship. So much of it remains intangible. We print up bulletins, we arrange an order of service, we devote time and resources to it, but these provide really little assurance that it's going to be a reality. It cannot be created because it's something that happens within us, not to us. Each of us are responsible for its presence or its absence. And in spite of all that we do, all that goes into it, all the variation and diversity within the body of Christ, despite the fact that it's for God, not for us, too often our worship is judged by personal tastes and stereotypes as if style determines authenticity. So depending on your background and traditions, the stereotypes will say things like, well, liberal worship is mere ritual. Conservative is too simplistic. Traditional is dry and boring. Contemporary is just entertainment. Charismatic is too emotional. Fundamentalists are too legalistic. All these stereotypes. But they say more about us than they do about God. Its genuineness is determined by what we put into it both individually and collectively, not style or preference. And I say all that because we do live in a time when the common understanding for worship for many is that it has to be uplifting and enthusiastic and exciting. If most are truly honest, it's judged by how does it make me feel? Does it make me happy? Do you realize that there is no one form, one right way to worship in the Bible? So in Chronicles 20, verse 18, it's done through laying down with your face to the ground. Yet in Psalms 123, verse 1, we're encouraged to lift our eyes to the one who sits enthroned in the heavens. In Psalm 95, we're told to kneel and bow down. Yet in Psalm 63, verse 4, we're told to lift up our holy hands. In Psalms 4, we're told to be still as we meditate upon the Lord. Yet in Psalms 149, we're told to dance before him. In Psalm 41, we're to clap our hands. In Psalm 65, we're to be silent. In Psalm 95, we're to sing and make a joyful noise, but in Psalm 47, we're to shout before him. Verse 2 of Psalm 29 says, Give the Lord glory due to his name and worship him in the beauty or the splendor of his holiness. Throughout the Bible, the words used to describe worship could be exciting and enthusiastic, but they could also be solemn and subdued. They could be uplifting, but they could also be humbling. It's not the position of our body or the style or the activity. It's the state of what's going on inside of us. 
That, the Bible says, is the key to worship. You know, Lola and I had a friend in college who played the piano for most of her life, and she played beautifully. At her senior recital, there were a few of us there supporting her, and I can remember another one of our close friends commenting that her technical skill was excellent, but there was something missing from her music. He said it didn't really come from her heart. That can describe our worship as well. We can do everything right, but it's merely a technical exercise, and our hearts aren't really in it. So too, we can do everything seemingly wrong, and yet still touch God. It's like what the jazz great Duke Ellington said when he was asked for a definition of rhythm. He said, if you got it, you don't need no definition. If you ain't got it, ain't no definition going to help. Worship can be that way. No matter how we define it or what we do here this morning, when we leave, we will be the ones to determine whether or not we have touched God, whether or not we have encountered Him. Because each of us bring our own attitude and create the attitude and atmosphere in here that makes worship possible or a hindrance. But what really happens when we worship. I want us to look at one of the most powerful encounters with God in all of Scripture. Because through it, we see what happens when we worship. The passage is found in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, one that is familiar to many of us. And as you turn there, a little bit of background really does help because the events of the day helped prepare Isaiah for his encounter with the Lord. For 52 years, Uzziah had ruled the nation of Judah. He had been a good king, a strong leader, considered one of the most godly of all their rulers. Under his leadership, Judah's power and wealth were exceeded only by Solomon's. Yet even though he was a godly king, he had spent the last 10 years of his life isolated and confined to his palace because he had come down with leprosy. And so he ruled through his son, Jotham. But now the king was dead. The nation was in mourning, and there was a growing threat coming from the north. They needed their king. And yet they were facing questions like, why would God allow such a godly ruler to suffer leprosy for so long? In the midst of their mourning and searching for answers, Isaiah goes to the temple to worship and to pray. What would he pray? How would he pray? How would we pray in such circumstances? Oh, Lord, help. God, we're in ruin. Our enemies are at the gates threatening to swoop down upon us. Do things, God. Fix things, God. Make it right. Heal us. Protect us. Restore us. Rescue us. And he never gets a chance to pray any of that. Instead, God's word says, in the year that King Uzziah died, in verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He comes to the temple disturbed by what's going on in the world around him. And he lives with a conviction that God had touched him and called him to do something. Life can drive us to our knees to seek an answer. And when we worship God, we see him. After 52 years of security and prosperity, the nation's in crisis, Isaiah's in crisis, and what made it worse was this was a time of the ascendancy for the armies of Caesarea. They had become players on the world stage, a major world power beginning to flex their muscles, increasingly turning their sights towards the promised land. People and nations were getting nervous. And just as the clouds of war were beginning to gather on their borders, Judah needed the wisdom and the strength that their king had provided for so long, and yet he was gone. And in his place there was fear and uncertainty. And Isaiah worships. As he worshipped, his attention was taken off of himself, off of what's going on in the world around him, and in his place, the scripture says, he sees God high and lifted up. Suddenly, with his vision, the enemy becomes what one writer referred to as little more than a scarecrow. The nation's crisis merely a gnat's bite. The big jostling sack of troubles Isaiah dragged into the temple shrank in the mountainous presence of God to a tiny dust mite that blows away in the wind. How greatly we need this to see and realize that God transcends our situations and circumstances. When we begin to worship, when we begin to see God in all his glory, the world and its problems begin to shrink. And our Goliaths don't seem so big anymore. Mark Buchanan writes, We often fail to grasp our greatest need in times of greatest need. When we are distressed, bewildered, threatened, shaken, in those moments when we want, more than anything, God to do something. When we wonder more than ever if there even is a God to do anything, in those moments of greatest need, our greatest need is simply to see the Lord to see him high and exalted, to see him in his kingly majesty, to see him in his perfect holiness. Nothing else can so quickly put our life into right perspective and scale it to its true proportion. Isaiah is reminded that while Uzziah's throne is empty, God's wasn't. The situation was not as it appeared around him. The king was dead, but the king of kings was still on his throne, high and exalted, and he says his train of his robe is filling the temple. The song of the angels affirm it as they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, not just the temple, the earth is full of his glory. Now, Whenever the Bible pictures heavenly worship, it centers on the holiness of God. 
that he's high, he's lifted up, he is different than us, he is not affected by the things that can get us tied up in a knot about. In Revelation 4, it records the worship when it says, each of the four living creatures had six wings covered with eyes, and under his wings, day and night, they stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They worship because he's holy. Because he's not dragged down by everything else going on around him. He's different than us. The passage continues in Revelations. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So what does it matter what Assyria is doing? What does it matter what the world is doing? God is on his throne. Isaiah saw him in his worship. And whatever accomplishments, whatever position or title, it matters little because it says the elders laid their crowns before the throne as they fell down in worship and gave him glory. The world around us is corrupt. It's fallen. It's affected by sin and selfishness. And yet God is holy. Holy means he's different. The kings of the world can seek to extend their reign. We may get concerned with national interests and boundaries and preoccupied with economic issues, but the earth is filled with God's glory and his majesty and his splendor. And in worship, we begin to realize that. Because we see God. And part of our difficulty in worship sometimes is that we make it about us. What do I like? What don't I like? What do I prefer? We treat it as just another part of our life. One more thing among many. Yet to say God is holy means he's not just one more. He's different. He's unlike everything else. He's set apart. Too often we fail to catch a glimpse of his glory because we're absorbed in ourselves. Worship takes our eyes off of ourselves to see God high and lifted up. It's about focusing on him and his holiness. Israel saw the armies of Assyria massing near their borders. Isaiah saw the Lord of hosts. The earth could be filled with violence and hatred and trouble, but Isaiah caught a glimpse that the whole earth is really filled with the glory of God. Worship takes us off of a human viewpoint to see the heavenly one. Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Therefore, let the whole earth be silent before him. So as we look at what we do on Sunday mornings, as we think about our songs or our prayers or the message, we need to ask, are we really looking to see God? Or for something else. In worship, we see God. And as we begin to see God, we begin to see our true selves. Not the mask we wear to show others, perhaps even to deceive ourselves. But in seeing God, we see who we really are. You know, Isaiah was a priest, a prophet, as good a man as you could find in ancient Israel. But after he sees 
God high and lifted up, he says, Woe is me, I cried, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He saw God, he saw himself. And Samuel, it says, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? That's why a common posture for worship was prostrated. You cannot stand in his presence with the attitude, well, I'm okay. It's just something to do for a little bit. Psalm 114 says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. In that context, worship may not make us feel good. Sometimes it can be very painful. Because we begin to see ourselves, how far short we really fall of God. It can be painful because we begin to see God and the depths of his love and perfection. And yet we begin to also see that grudge we're holding is really insignificant in comparison. Or that lust we're feeding really is inappropriate. Or our desire for things really is unfulfilling. Or the sin in our lives which seems to dominate us only grieves he who is holy. When we see ourselves, we see our motivation, our prejudices, our ambitions, our harmful habits, our things that create separation with he who is holy. Worship brings that to light. What we, when we worship, what happens is we begin by seeing God, we begin to see ourselves, and as a result, we see our sin and our need for repentance. As Dr. Laberton said in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, The only qualification you or I can ever bring to our worship is our neediness, not our stature. We're forced to confront our failure, for then we turn our eyes away from ourselves to our Savior. In worship, we realize that we've entered God's presence and we'll be changed because of it. You know, in verses 6 and 7, There's a picture of this when it talks about one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah could not go back to the way things were. He had worshipped the king. He was different. In some way, his life was changed. Just like the disciples. Do you remember the story in the gospel After Jesus' death, they tried to go back to fishing. And it didn't work. Because they had been with Jesus. And Jesus appears with them by the sea, and he reminds them that now their lives were changed. The Spirit will use our encounters with him to draw us deeper into a relationship. One of my favorite quotes on worship was written by Annie Dillard in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She writes, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. In worship, we're not content for settling for mere entertainment or ritual or style because we see God. He helps us see ourselves, our need, and ultimately, it calls for a response. We see this in acknowledging our sin. It provides an opportunity to respond to God. Isaiah then heard the voice of the Lord. Who will respond? Who will go for us? Who's going to respond to this vision of which he said, Here am I, Lord, send me. Because worship always calls for a response from us. It prepares us for service. As we encounter the living God, we respond in reaching out to one another and to those outside. Taking concrete actions because we're different. Doing something because we've been in the presence of our sovereign. That's why every week we offer a time of response at the end of the service. It allows an individual to respond to what God may be doing in their lives. To respond in some way, to take some action, to say, I've seen the king and I need to do something about it. Because without response... We become like the sentiments expressed in an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Calvin is in the store with his father, and they're approaching the escalator, and the father begins to tell Calvin about what the escalators were like when he was a child. He starts going on and on and on about what they were made of, what sound they make, how wide they were, and Calvin's response is, I'd hate to think that all my current experiences will someday become a story with no point. Don't let your experiences become merely stories with no point. In worship, there's a point to it. And we come to worship. When we come to worship, we should come preparing to meet with God. Expecting to meet with God. Some weeks, we may not feel like it. But God says he's here. He's present. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, I am right there in the middle of you. And as we prepare and expect it, God will help us see ourselves as we really are, what our needs are, and we'll begin to ask, well, how do I respond to you, God? You know, ultimately, salvation is our first real encounter with God, our first worship experiences, because it's then that we see Him, how much He loves us, how much He cares for us so much, Scripture says He gave His own Son. As we see Him and His love for us, we begin to see ourselves, we begin to see our need, our sin, our separation from God. As Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of His glory. And then we respond. God has offered himself to us, and we respond in worship, saying, God, I want you to be a part of my life. That's salvation. 